Everybody know John and Ellie? Right. For those of you who don't know, Ellie's a med student, and John is working on his Ph.D. thesis at Tulane. So be careful of these two people. They know a lot. <laughs> so good to have everybody here this morning. Isn't it a joy to walk in late and get special attention? <laughs> this morning we're continuing with our study. And, and I am particularly excited and really anxious. I'm gnawing at, what is it, gnawing at the bit? I'm chomping at the bit to take all that we have been learning in here. I say we. I learn a lot as I study. Obviously, I don't know anything unless I study and unless the Holy Spirit reveals it to me. Otherwise, I'm a stump. And so I don't know anything. So anything that you learn in here or from anything that in counseling or preaching uh, is not because something is indigenous to Peter Davidson. It's just the work of the Holy Spirit teaching an old man in some kind of way, getting that information to you. So that's just the work of the Spirit. So let's make sure as we are in these classes and God is ministering, and I know he is, it's okay to say something about the teacher, but it's a primary significance to remember. Thank God for his ministry and work through any of us. Amen? Because that's the way I think honor comes to God and flows to us, through us, to God. And so it retains the glory in the person of God rather than in the teacher. But what was I saying in the beginning? Why was I saying all that? Oh, I am chomping at the bit to take all of this and apply it to the area of my life and your life, and especially of my life, where I do the best. I shine in this area to apply this to the husband-wife relationship. And so if you ask Gene, I shine in this area. Uh, now, what does shine mean? I'm not sure, but <laughs> I didn't expect. I mean, even last night, uh, you know, it's okay to say this. We were discussing something, and I was not understanding what she was telling me. I, you know, and, and she says, and she's right, and I don't mind saying this. Uh, it happens. She says, well, you're able to help so many others. Why not me? Well, the problem is Gene speaks Chinese. I don't. But how many of us have discovered this, really, that we are used by the Holy Spirit to minister others, and yet when it comes to our own, something is in the way. And so when she said that last night, I, I need to pray about that. I need to find out from the Holy Spirit what is happening <clears throat> because it does happen, but there is an answer to it, and there's a way through it. Amen? So just as a little opening into a husband and wife uh, relationship there, even if it's the pastor's wife and the past, one of the pastors themselves, it's okay to share that. I think we need to do that from time to time to let you know that we are as human as everybody else. Amen? That's right. Now, <clears throat> but I am chomping at the bit to get into that particular last session and how all of this applies to husbands and wives because I don't think we've thought about this. And I think it's an incredibly marvelous revelation that will hopefully help to build the encouragement and the excitement and the purpose of marriage. Because all of this culminates in God pouring all of this work of prophet, priest, and king 
into his people, specifically in the body of Christ, but more specifically in the body of Christ, in the relationship between a husband and wife, to accomplish on earth what he was going to accomplish through the union of Adam and Eve and all the other folks who would be married. Amen? So you might be praying about that. I'm excited about it. So this morning, as we continue to consider Jesus' prophetic role, let's remember that the Word of God is God's creative means of bringing all of His purpose into being. Everything that God purposes to do is accomplished, not because He wants it to happen. Excuse me, that's just an old car backfiring. Not just because He wants it to happen, but God produces His purpose through means. And the means of God bringing everything into reality that He purposes is through the activity, the announcement, the proclamation, the speaking forth of His Word. And you remember in Genesis and then in John 1, etc., we see that God the Father does this. He brings forth His great eternal purpose through the agency of His own Son and the work of the Spirit, right? And so when we talk about Jesus' prophetic ministry, we talk about Adam in the role of prophet. We're talking about Moses in the role of prophet or any of the prophets. We are talking about God's primary means of accomplishing or bringing about his creative purpose. In this person who has been anointed with the authority of God to bring forth the, in power his word so that his purpose <clears throat> is accomplished upon the earth. And so we remember we see that and, and we'll talk about that a little bit in more detail. So in Genesis God's intention was that his presence and his purpose would fill the earth. Remember through Adam through Adam's obedience and through Adam's sharing the word and speaking the word, if you would, into his progeny. This is by implication. It doesn't say, and Adam, you shall instruct all your children this way. But it's by implication. God gives to Adam all of these instructions. And then after he gives to Adam all of this instruction, then he creates a woman. Then he brings about the woman. And it's by obvious implication that what Adam now has been given to share, the knowledge that Adam has been given, the word, the, the obedience, everything that God has given to Adam is now to be shared with his wife. And so the two of them walking together in the unity of obedience are to have progeny, descendants, children. And in like manner, they are to give to their children what God has given to them as God has given it to Adam. So we see the order, if you would. And in that way, as this family begins to grow and to multiply and remain in unity through obedience, the earth is beginning to become filled with the glory of God. As the Garden of Eden, as Eden itself and the Garden itself begin to expand 
all around the world so that outside the garden in the field begins to be taken over by the order of the cosmos in the garden. You remember we've talked about some of these things. And so in this way, the kingdom of God would encompass the entire earth and his people would enjoy everlasting fellowship with God, which was God's primary purpose in Genesis 1.26. What does it say? Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. And what does that mean? That God would personally, intimately, forever fellowship, relationship with his people he would dwell with his people and they would dwell with him. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you do a search of that, I will be your God, you will be my people. You will see it extensively in Exodus and in Leviticus and in Numbers. God's grand purpose of having a family with whom he can share himself forever. Amen. So what does 2 Peter 1.3 say? We have been given what? Everything necessary for life and godliness because we now have this great and intimate fellowship with God. It's an incredible revelation, an incredible work. Now, years after Adam's disobedience, remember, the Lord gathered his people, remember, at the base of Sinai at Mount Horeb. Make sure I'm, I'm doing the right uh, sermon here. I'm just realizing... I'm doing the wrong one. <laughs> and you know what? I don't know if I had the right one with me today. <laughs> and, and isn't that, isn't it? I have not experienced this much opposition from the enemy for a long, long time. Because Gene can tell you that. So hold on, I'm going to get it. I knew there was something wrong with my notes. It's amazing. Well, let, me, let me share this quickly. Lester Coe, is Lester here this morning? I shouldn't be running like that. I'm too old to run like that. Lester Coe was praying for leadership this morning. Let me encourage you. This week, because I'm going to preach this morning, I have not experienced this much opposition from the enemy in all kinds of areas. A sample just then. Throwing away the wrong notes. I have not experienced this kind of opposition in a very long time. Gene can tell you. In fact, part of the issue of our discussion last night was a result of things colliding. And so, as we and as you, any of us, seek to minister... We have to remember, 
there is an unrelenting, malevolent opposition who do, does not back down or go away. And we find ourselves from time to time being more aware of it, although it's always there. And we must continually resist it in the name of Jesus. So let's go through this. Now, good morning, class. Good to see you this morning. Last week, we learned, as I was already discussing, that Jesus, the prophet, is like Moses is being fulfilled. With the coming of Jesus, all of a sudden, we have Deuteronomy 18, 15, and verse 18 being fulfilled. You know, I'm going to raise up a prophet like you, one who does the same kind of prophetic work, but one who's going to fulfill the work. So as such, Jesus comes to complete the work that Moses is unable to complete. He can only take it a certain distance, and he can't go any further. And so he's, Jesus comes to establish the kingdom of God through his role as prophet. How? By the administration of God's word, the gospel. Please remember, God's kingdom is built on the basis and through the agency of his word. It just doesn't come into existence through hocus pocus. Therefore, in the same way that Jesus was God's agent who spoke the original creation into existence... He is also God's agent who speaks the new creation, the new kingdom, the kingdom of God into existence, thus fulfilling Genesis 1, 26, 27, and 28. Let the earth be filled, you see, fill the earth. However, unlike the prophets of old, and here's a major, the major distinction we need to make between Jesus and every other prophet of the Bible. Unlike the prophets of old who spoke the word that was given to them from God, they were given something that they did not have resident in them according to their nature. Jesus speaks out of himself. He speaks out of his own nature. He speaks out of the truth that he himself does not have the word of God, if you would, in that context of having been given it because you didn't have it until you were given it. But he speaks out of the context of what? Always having been the living word of God. So John 1.1, 1, 1, in the beginning was the <clears throat> word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So there's the major distinction. When Jesus comes, he doesn't speak as one who has been given authority and a word that he did not have of himself. What he speaks, he speaks of himself and out from his nature, and that creates the kingdom of God. That's why Moses and all the other prophets could never have accomplished God's purpose of establishing the kingdom. They could only do types and shadows and pieces and, and whatever just to bring about the revelation of what the kingdom is really going to be about. It took literally the word himself incarnate in flesh to come and be the prophetic voice of authority that said, let the kingdom be established, just like he said in the beginning, let there be light. And there was Light, remember in verse 3 of Genesis chapter 1. See, this is why Jesus could say what no other prophet could dare to say. Heaven and earth will pass away, what? 
but my word. He didn't say the word of God. He didn't say what God gave Moses. He said, but my word will what? Never pass away. And so Jesus comes and with the audacity that probably terrified many, he says, my word, my words, my words, my words. Now you can imagine if someone's out there preaching and teaching and we are the people of God and all of a sudden someone's out there proclaiming something that sounds like he is God, what would we think and say? We would be disturbed. Sometimes when we look at the New Testament, we kind of get down on those who didn't see Jesus for We wouldn't have either. And nobody did until the Holy Spirit began to what? To revelation. Because if the Holy Spirit doesn't reveal him to us, we, like everyone else, would be totally against him because we would think he's crazy or whatever it is. So a prophet like Moses. Hmm. Like Moses, Jesus was anointed and armed with the prophetic power of God's word. Remember, we went through some of the similarities last week with the power of God's word. Remember, it is written when he confronted Satan in the wilderness in Matthew 4 and Luke 4. It is written. He confronted God's word for the overthrowing of the usurper so that those who had been held by Satan's lies, who had been held in the grip of Satan's lies, would be able to become free as members of the kingdom of God. In Mark 3, 27, Jesus no doubt probably has this role in mind, this this unbinding role when he says this, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. And I think that when Jesus said that, he's remembering his encounter in the wilderness when he, Jesus, the prophet of God, with the word of God and as the word of God, goes into the strong man's domain and confronts the strong man himself and overcomes the strong man's lies with the truth of the word of God. The truth always will triumph over the lie. So you remember after that encounter, Jesus left the Jordan armed with the sword of the Spirit. Remember the sword of the Spirit in Ephesians 6, 20, uh, 6 17, the sword of the Spirit. Ready for battle in the same way that he was ready to lead Joshua into battle. You remember that? Jesus comes out of the wilderness ready for battle. He has the sword of the Spirit in his hand, the sword of the Word of God. And he's ready now to conquer, to conquer, to establish, to go into the land and wipe out the enemy and establish his kingdom. You remember Joshua 5, what happened? The nation crosses the Jordan River. They come to Gilgal. And then in chapter 5, what? They're ready to go. We're ready to get going. We're going to go against, uh, what's the first city? Jericho. We're going to take down that great stronghold, that mighty stronghold. The biggest stronghold is in their way is Jericho. Everything else depends on them destroying Jericho. If they don't destroy Jericho, they cannot go into the promised land. So they must defeat the stronghold. And they're ready to do it. And Joshua sees a man standing before him. Remember that? A man who was clad in armor with a great sword in his hand. And Joshua wisely asks, are you for us or against us? <laughs> and he says what? Neither I am the captain of the hosts of Yahweh. 
Take off your shoes from off your feet, for the ground upon which you stand is holy ground. Where have we heard that before? When Moses comes before the presence of Yahweh in Exodus 3, it's the same thing. So now you see, Joshua now, in the spirit of being led by this warrior, is able to go and destroy the stronghold of Jericho and the other six nations that are conspiring against him so that the promised land may be able to be captured and the people can be settled so God's kingdom can be established in the promised land. Jesus is the same. This is the same thing we see when we see Jesus coming out of the wilderness ready to go. So what we do, let's do this. Let's outline some of the ways that Jesus uses his prophetic role to reclaim God's people as members of the kingdom of God. And let's see the functioning of the role of Jesus in relation to the construction and the building of the kingdom of God. After announcing, remember, his intention in Luke 4. You remember Luke 4, 18 and 19? The spirit of the Lord or the spirit of Yahweh is upon me for he has anointed me to what? Preach the good news of the gospel to the poor. Remember that? He announces his intention. I am here as God's anointed prophet. I am here in the spirit and the authority of God himself as the one who will speak the very word of God and live the very word of God so that they may see the very word of God in order to have the kingdom established. So he announces that, remember, in Luke 4, 18 and 19. It comes, it's a, it's a prophecy out of Isaiah chapter, six, chapter 61, verse 1. And so he goes, goes throughout Galilee, teaching in their synagogues, preaching the good news of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. That's what Matthew comments as a result of Jesus' proclamation or announcement in Luke 4. This is what Matthew says. Jesus went throughout Galilee, teaching in the synagogues. Teaching is a proclamation of the word of God. Remember what teaching and preaching are. Saying these are word of God activities. Preaching the good news or the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and sickness among the people. So through Jesus, the twin ministries of teaching, preaching, and of signs and wonders, he is teaching, preaching, and he is producing signs and wonders, this twin ministry of the prophet. And he does this in order to construct the kingdom of God. So let's talk about the prophet's teaching. In Matthew chapter 5 to 7, Jesus outlines, remember, the precepts of the kingdom life in ethical and relational terms. Remember, Jesus comes, ascends the mountain, and delivers the sermon of the precepts of the kingdom of God. You remember also, Moses had ascended the mountain, and as God's mediator, then God delivers, remember, the precepts of the kingdom. You remember, in Exodus chapter 19 and 20, you remember that. We'll be getting back to Exodus sometime or another on Sunday mornings. Following this inaugural teaching, following this Sermon on the Mount, as it's called in chapters 5 to 7, Sermon on the Mount, Jesus explained the various aspects and activities of the kingdom, especially with the phrase, the kingdom of God is like. 
So what does the kingdom of God look like? What, what kind of a kingdom is this? Who's in? Who's out? Where's it going? How much does it encompass? What, kind, what is this kingdom? And so he uses the word, the kingdom of God is light. Matthew, and let me just read these verses, Matthew 31, 13, 31. The kingdom of heaven is like a grain of mustard seed. Hmm. 33, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. 44, the kingdom of heaven is like a treasure hidden in the field. 45, the kingdom of God is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. 47, the kingdom of heaven is like a net that was thrown into the sea and gathered fish of every kind. 52, the kingdom of heaven is like a master of a house. And so you see Jesus is out there giving definition and description and a reality to what this kingdom is all about. And one of the things that would be good and instructive for us is to take that particular chapter and look at the various aspects. What is the kingdom about? And read that and look at it and ask ourselves, are we participating actively and accurately in this activity, which is a description of and which moves the kingdom forward? Is, are there any activities here, anything here that I might need to be involved with in a better way or understanding and comprehending in a greater way in order to cause the kingdom to be more manifested in me and causing me and allowing me to be used in a greater way of bringing forth that kingdom into the world where I live? What about the prof prophet's works? What about the works of the prophet? Again, I, I'm, I'm not going through everything that Jesus does. I'll, I'll, otherwise, we'll be here for ages. So I'm skipping over a huge amount of information. For instance, Jesus said, he said, he spoke. Let me just list the list of all those things. Do a computer search. Jesus said, he said, he spoke. It was just, every, just all over the place. And every time he's speaking, every time he has spoken, there is an activity of kingdom building, either the positive building up of the kingdom or the, if you would, I don't like the term, I shouldn't have used it, negative revelation of that which is not of the kingdom and which opposes the kingdom. So he approaches the Pharisees and he speaks to them differently than he does the crowds, basically. And in the crowds, he's speaking about the kingdom and what they should do and how they can become a part of the kingdom and who are members of the kingdom. And it's like an in-gathering through his words. But when it comes to these shepherds who have misled the people, as we see in Ezekiel 34, woe unto you, woe unto you, he says. Then he speaks negatively what the kingdom is not and what they are not to do and what they should not do and opposing their supposed activity of building a kingdom because the kingdom that they are building or at least attempting to build is a false kingdom. And so you have this mixture in his words. Very interesting when you look at all the things that he said and to whom he said it and why he said it and what were the effects of his speaking be a wonderful word study there, wonderful study at all. So this morning, I'm going to summarize some of the prophetic ministry of Jesus by referencing Matthew 11, 2 to 5. John the Baptist has been thrown in jail, about to cut his head off. And he has anointed, remember, or rather baptized Jesus in the wilderness. Do you remember that? He was there. 
Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He says, I need to be baptized by you, not the reverse. I'm not even worthy to undo your shoes. And Jesus says, let it be so now in order for all righteousness, remember, to be what? Fulfilled. So John baptized him. Jesus comes up out of the water and the heavens open. This is my son, my beloved, my agapitos, my Jedediah. Remember, Solomon was called Jedediah by God, in whom I am well pleased. And the dove descends and anoints Jesus, and off he goes into the wilderness by the Spirit. And John's ministry begins to decline, you remember, because now the one whom he has spoken of is here, and John is no longer needed in that prophetic role. And finally, he's thrown into jail. And he, he's not sure. Are you the one? The one what? Jerry, are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Are you the prophet? Because when I baptized you, I felt you were the prophet. But now I'm confused because I, I don't see what I thought I would see. I, I'm not experiencing. Am I, was I confused? Are you the prophet? He doesn't, are you the one? The prophet. That's what he's talking about. The one what? The prophet. And Jesus answers him in this particular passage. So look what Jesus said. Listen to what Jesus says. Matthew 11, 2 to 5. When John heard in prison what Christ was doing, he sent his disciples. Are you the one? Who was to come, or should we expect someone else? Did I miss it? And Jesus replied, go back and report to John what you hear and you will see. Now look at verse 5, because I'm going to delineate the activities of verse 5. What happens? Tell John what you see. What's happening? These are the activities of the building of the kingdom, which Jesus talked about in his inaugural address in Luke 4, 18 and 19. Don't disassociate the word of God. Don't take one chapter out of Luke and Matthew and all that. And these are, these are all a collective. This is a collective comprehensive activity. So what Jesus is really doing here, he's just repeating to John what he's told the population in Nazareth. Remember this? The spirit of Yahweh, the Lord God is upon me. For he has anointed me to what? And do these things. And so what we see here is just a real re-saying of that announcement in Luke 4, 18 to 19. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is preached to the poor. Do you see Luke 4 in there? When we read the Bible, let's see other passages in this passage. And when you read your Bible and this passage reminds you of that passage, bring it over and put it together and make a note. We reference here and reference there. See, in, 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 in oh, I'm going to get off track. I know what's going to happen. In, in, in Exodus 40, when the tabernacle is finished, the glory of the Lord fills the tabernacle. Well, what does that remind us of? It reminds us of 2 Chronicles 7, when Solomon finishes praying and what? The glory of the Lord. Then what else does it remind me of? It reminds me of the birth of someone when the angels announced glory to God in the highest because of the birth of this little one. It reminds me of the glory 
that comes upon and settles upon the church in Acts chapter 2. You see, it's the continuing work of God being moved forward to its manifestation through the coming of Christ as prophet, priest, and king and given its culmination in the construction or the bringing forth or the manifestation of the sons of God, the church. And then the final glory of God in Revelation 21 where God finally what? dwells with his people forever, amen, in the union of heaven and earth together, which is what God had intended in Genesis chapters 1 and 2. And they tell me you can't understand and believe the Bible. So let's go through some of these activities to see this new creation, this, this 2 Corinthians 5.17 activity. The blind receive sight. Remember, the blind receive sight. <clears throat> Matthew 20, verses 30 to 34. Just going to read some passages. Two blind men were sitting by the roadside, and when they heard that Jesus was going by, they shouted, oh, I like that. Lord, son of David. You see, they've already connected the Messiah with the eternal son of David whom God had promised David would sit on your throne. I will produce an heir, a son. Have mercy upon us. <clears throat> the crowd rebuked them and told them to be quiet, but they shouted all the more louder. Lord, son of David, have mercy on us. Jesus stopped and called them. What do you want me to do? He asked. Lord, then they answered, we want our sight. Jesus had compassion on them, touched their eyes, and immediately they received their sight and followed him. He brings forth sight. What does 2 Corinthians 4, 4 say? The God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers. They can't see. So that they cannot see the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ who is the image of God. Image, Genesis 1.26. So what is a kingdom building principle? We were born into this world as blind people spiritually. And we cannot see and receive the kingdom of God unless we're born again. Verily I say unto you, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. Somebody said that somewhere. I remember. And so it's not an issue of a blind man looking for Jesus and coming. Oh, oh finally. It's Jesus looking for blind men. It's never our initiation of God it can't be it can't be I don't care what they say it cannot be blind deaf dead people cannot search for God on their own God must search us out and find us which he will never fear God will get all of his people into the kingdom so the light has to be spoken so what does Genesis 1.23 say? Let there be light. What does 2 Corinthians 4.6 uh, say? For God who said, let there be light, has shown in our hearts with the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. Blind becoming sightseers. The kingdom of God is being built. The lame walk. The word walk is parapeteo, which means your daily manner of life. The lame walk. <clears throat> Matthew 2, I'm sorry, Mark 2, 10 to 12. Jesus said to the paralytic, 
I t- remember the guy in the roof, remember them, all that and so on. I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And he got up, took up his mat, and he walked out in full view of them all. Ephesians 2.2, 2, you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air. Before we were born again, we were walking, but we were walking according to the course of the God of this world. We were walking in the path of unrighteousness, and God came about and gave us, if you would, new legs, new ability by the Spirit birthing us into the kingdom. He has now given us a new ability, a new for us, new ability for us now, what? To walk in the paths of righteousness. So what does Psalm 23 say? I will, you know what? You lead me in the path of righteousness for your name's sake. Paul talks about that in 6.4 of Romans, walking in newness of life. Walk a manner of life. We could not walk according to God's righteousness. We were crippled. The crippled man is not able, I'm going to get up, and I'm going to come to Jesus, and now he's going to heal me. He couldn't get up. But do you notice how he got to Jesus? Those who were able to walk brought him. Then Jesus commanded him to get up. He spoke creatively into their life, into his life, and created in him the ability that he does in every one of us, creates in us the ability to walk. I do not have the ability on my own to walk to Jesus in order to be saved. I don't have it. Crippled people can't walk. Therefore, they're called cripple. He didn't say he just kind of, you know, had a back problem and he finally got there, Claude. He said he's crippled. He's on a pallet. He can't get up. This is a precept of the kingdom. The kingdom is built by the spoken word of God, by the creative word of God to the blind to see, and now what? To the cripple to be able to walk. Those who have leprosy are cured. Matthew 8, 1 through 4, and when he came down, meet Jesus from the mountainside. Remember the Ten Commandments? I'm sorry, the Ten Commandments, the precepts of the kingdom, the mountain of, uh, what do you call it? The Beatitudes, Sermon on the Mount, seven, 5 to 7. Jesus finished. He's coming down from the mountain now. It's interesting. The first thing he encounters when he comes down from the mountain is the issue of sin. The first thing he encounters, because leprosy is a picture of sin, the pollution and defilement of sin. That's what, it's a real disease, but that's what God is using it to represent, the defilement and the pollution of sin. So when you see leprosy in the Bible, it's typically say it's cleansed, it's cleansed, it's cleansed. Why cleanse? Why not heal? It's cleansed because our sins are never healed. They're what? Cleansed or washed away. Don't you see? So when he came down from the mountain, large crowds followed him, and a man with leprosy came and knelt before him and said, Lord, if you're willing, can you make me clean? Jesus reached out his hand and touched the man. I am willing, he said, be clean. Immediately he was cured of his leprosy. Ah, well, there's, you see, there's an example of a man looking for Jesus. (laughs) No. No. Here's an example of a man who was being wooed and won by the power and the love of God as Jesus brought him. You see, we're looking at it externally. It looks like, hey, but when we look behind the curtain, there is a God 
who was saying, come on, Joey. Jody, come on, come on, come on, come on. And Jody's coming. And Jody doesn't know she's coming because she's being led. All she knows is she's coming. She needs something. And her leprosy, his leprosy is cleansed away. How do we become members of the kingdom? The first priority and the most important priority, we'll speak about that this morning in the sermon, is forgiveness. If your sins aren't washed away, you're not part of the kingdom. And let me say this, unequivocally, unabashedly, and un... But where do I want? There's another one I wanted to be corrected. I'm not going to be corrected on it. Uncorrectably. When Jesus washes my sins away, he washes every sin that he knows about. Now, how much does Jesus know about me? Everything. Everything that he knows about, he washes away. Therefore, there remains no unforgiven sin in me. Now, there remains the activity of sin and the continual issue of being defiled and polluted by it and getting it dirty and, you know, that activity. But the unforgiveness is washed away. Colossians 2.13, 1 John 5, I mean, 1 John uh, 1, 7. All sin, all of it washed away. So when you and I sin, do we still sin? When we sin... We don't need to fear judgment. But now we can go to a holy father who has said, I've cleansed you your sin away as to its what? As to its punishment. Come to me and let me be washing you daily. You see? The deaf hear, huh? Mark 9.25. When Jesus saw a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. Remember the deaf, the guy out? Okay. And the deaf, you deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you to come out of him and never enter him again. And the spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said, he's dead. God, Jesus killed him. Ah!" You know, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him up to his feet and he stood up. The deaf, we cannot hear the clarion call of God through natural ears. We can only hear them through spiritual ears so that when we begin to hear the clarion call of God's love in our spirit, it translates then into our souls by the Holy Spirit who then causes us to hear it naturally and we begin to respond. Amen? Amen. We're deaf. We're deaf. Dead, deaf, disease, dumb. I mean, whatever. And the last one, the dead are raised. John 11, 41 to 44. Now, when Ephesians 2, 1, you were dead in your sins and trespasses. Jesus and the fellows out a few miles from Bethany. They're having a barbecue, whatever, I don't know. Servant runs in, Jesus, yes. You got to come to Bethany. Why? Your friend. Your only friend, the friend whom you love, Lazarus. Reminds me of the call of God to Abraham in Genesis 22, but that's another thing. He's sick. He's sick. You need to come. He's dying. So the servant leaves. And what do you expect? Okay, guys, let's get going. Pack it up. Get it going. You know, ready to go. I can just see the apostles already. 
getting this stuff together. You know, especially the loud mouth. Peter, come on, let's get it going now. You know, okay, there's always a loud mouth in every group. So let's get it going. Let's get it going. And Jesus just sitting there. I think Jesus slurped. So I said that for my wife. She loves my slurping. So, and time's passing. And like, finally, Jesus says, hey, let's go down to Bethany. It's a little late, don't you think? And he gets there. Jesus, had you been here? It's four days. It's the fourth day. Why four days? Because the Jewish understanding was that death was absolutely certified after the, fourth day, after the third day was over, the fourth day. By the fourth day, you dead. You dead. Before then, eh, we're not sure. But the fourth day, dead. So he waited. He waited until there was no possibility that Lazarus was just kind of chilling out in the tomb. Chilling, chilling in the tomb, cold, chilling, get it? You like that, huh? Give me five. That's a five. So, listen, and he goes there. The final miracle in John before he goes to the cross. Roll away the stone. And here's the son of life. Here's the light of the world. Facing the enemy's primary weapon. Hebrews 2.14 tells you that. Facing death, which is the ultimate weapon and antithesis of the God of life, the living God. And I see him as approaching that tomb with anger. Anger. You are going to be destroyed forever. Lazarus, come forth. And the man comes forth, thus anticipating a week later. Amen? Amen. This man, Jesus, is angry because his people are being held in the grip of death by an enemy whom Jesus, as a prophet, priest and king has come to utterly destroy. 1 John 3.8 For the Son of God has appeared for this purpose, that he might destroy the work of the devil. Amen? And he raises Lazarus from the dead. We were dead in our sins and trespasses. He, Ephesians 2.1 Dead people can't be born again on their own. Deaf people can't hear the call of the gospel. Blind people can't see the revelation of God's face, etc., etc., etc. Thank God for the initiating, overcoming power of God's elective, predestinating choice. Amen? Amen. Next week we'll talk about Jesus the priest. <clears throat> run out of here and get downstairs. John, I'll take it downstairs.